I founded the Beware Collective, a not-for-profit organization that aims to bring nutritional education and mental health support to the fashion and creative industries. I believe the topics we discuss throughout our series are relevant to whatever industry that you work in or any issues that you might be facing. Because as a collective, together, we are stronger. podcast is sponsored by my friends at Pucker Herbs. Herbal teas are a fantastic way to increase your water intake and keep you hydrated throughout the day. A little fact for you all. Did you know that your thirst mechanisms switch on when you're already 2% dehydrated? And dehydration leads to fatigue and weakness. So switch the kettle on, pop a pucker tea bag in and sip away. I have had a long-term organic relationship with Pucker Herbs for many years now, and I'm so pleased that they are our official sponsor for Live Well, Be Well Series 1. They are 100% organic and recognised by the Soil Association, as well as ethically sourced. Their newest tea, Peace Tea, has become part of my evening ritual routine and is one of my all-time favourites. Packed with hemp leaf and ashwagandha, these herbs help melt away my daily stresses. Thank you, Pucker Herbs, so much for sponsoring this first series. With COVID-19 now a global epidemic and it looking to last for many months to come, I've changed this whole series around and have now spoken to some top scientists to bring you all the correct evidence-based science about COVID-19, as there is so much misinformation out there. I really hope you find this podcast useful and it helps you understand more about COVID-19 and where potentially this is going to take us. With the UK reporting already a thousand deaths, there is so much more that we can all do to help stop the spread of this virus, protect our loved ones and honour the government's recommendations of staying at home. Today's episode, I will be speaking to Vivian Parry, OBE, to bring you all the evidence-based facts about COVID-19. Vivian is a scientist by training who has a role as the head of engagement at Genomics England and sits on the board of the UKRI. This is the body responsible for strategic spend of £7 billion of the government's R&D funding. She advised the government on the vaccination during the period of MMR and swine flu. And she's also presented one of my favourite science shows, Tomorrow's World. Apologies for the sound in this episode. Please do bear with it as it was recorded last minute and not in unusual settings. I hope you still enjoy it and still find it very useful. So welcome Vivian Parry to the Live Well, Be Well podcast. Thank you for coming on such a short space of notice and laying out the evidence-based facts and science about COVID-19. I'm delighted to be with you. (laughs) (laughs) From a distance, I may say, we are doing this via our houses. I am in London and Vivian is at her home, I think, in Oxford. Um, Social distancing while on the podcast. So can I firstly ask you, Vivian, how are you today and how are you coping with the lockdown situation which we all currently find ourselves in? Well, I'm absolutely fine. But I'm lucky in that I'm a mad keen gardener and I have an acre of garden and now is the busiest time of year. So before this, I've been scurrying out in the garden, planting my potatoes. Oh, fantastic. That's a love. And it's a beautiful day today as well. So that's very yeah. good. It's so a bit cold. It is. Yeah. It, yes, it is a bit cold today. So I'd love to just delve right on in all about COVID-19 because I've had so many questions Um, put to me, which I'd love to ask you. So why is it labelled COVID-19? As I'm hearing many untrustworthy sources giving information to why it's been giving the number 19. Uh, 19 because of the year in which it was uh, first discovered. Ah, okay. That's great because I've been hearing so many different things of such as you have 19 different symptoms or it takes 19 days. Okay, so these... Nineteen is the so there's a convention about how viruses are named, and 
so SARS, uh, uh, um, severe, uh, let me just get this, I've got to get this right. Uh, so um, you will hear people talk about COVID-19, that's COVID, so coronavirus and disease. COVID-19 is the condition, the symptoms that are caused by the virus, which is called SARS-CoV-2. So it's a SARS-like virus. And it's two because it's not SARS, but it's very similar to SARS. And SARS, the severe acute respiratory syndrome, was what uh, there was an outbreak in 2003 in Asia. And there's another respiratory uh, uh, coronavirus that people will know of, which is Middle Eastern respiratory virus. So that's uh, uh, so that's MERS. Okay, and so what exactly is COVID-19? Would you be able to explain a little bit to our listeners of what that so is? So COVID-19 are the, is the infection that is caused by SARS-CoV-2. And typically, uh, the, the symptoms are very well known now, dry cough, fever, particularly affecting the respiratory uh, uh, tract and particularly the lungs. So not like a cold where you get upper respiratory tract. It's much. It, it often attacks the tissues uh, of the lungs. Other things that uh, people get. About a third of people have a, a complete loss of uh, smell uh, for a short period of time. And there are some. Some people will get diarrhea. That's a very small amount because interestingly, the the bit the kind of docking bay that the SARS virus uses to enter cells is found principally on the outside of lung cells, but also on gastrointestinal cells. So that's why a few people also get uh, get um, uh, gastric problems too. But that's a, that's a minor symptom compared to the fever and the dry cough. And, and unfortunately for some people, um, the the typical course is, you know, about a few days oh. may be infectious, but have no symptoms or just feel a bit under the weather. And then what you get is um, about seven days of a fever. And then uh, for some people, you may then start a secondary lung infection and a pneumonia. And that comes about after five to seven days, is that correct? The stage two? Yes. Or is it longer? Uh, it's about five to seven days. But there's quite a lot of variation. And one thing is, once someone has some symptoms, the small, mild symptoms, how long does that expect to escalate for until they start hitting? Is it five days until they might start having a temperature? Or could that happen immediately? So the temperature happens pretty much uh, straight away and may escalate and really may be a pretty high uh, temperature. And uh, then your the temperature will resolve. And for most people, you will be better from that period on, although you'll feel like a baby bird, completely kiboshed by it. Uh, for some people, however, they then go on to get secondary uh, lung infection. And they may either need uh, antibiotics for that, or they may need respiratory help. And so this virus is an RNA virus, but I think many people won't actually understand what an RNA virus is. Would you be able okay. to describe what that is and how it's different from a DNA virus? Okay, sure. So uh, you and I, DNA is what we have that makes up our body's instruction manual. We've got a copy of it in uh, every our genome, which is all our genetic material. Is We've got a copy of it in almost every cell of our body. Quite a lot of viruses are DNA viruses, but these particular viruses happen to be RNA viruses. That means that they have a little short strand of uh, genetic material, which is made of RNA, which is a close cousin to DNA. And RNA viruses tend to be the ones that are change quite a bit because the whole purpose of a virus is to is is constant change because 
you can think of viruses like you think think of a population of bacteria that they're always wanting to be to replicate quicker or to infect faster or to be better and different in some ways so that the host that they're in doesn't knock them all out and what you have is you have slightly every time a virus replicates and it's about every 30 minutes you may get some little copying errors going on and then you'll have some of the virus population which are slightly different to the others and if that slight difference confers an advantage on them because they're able to replicate faster or infect more easily or whatever it is or survive longer when they're out of the body then that will give them an advantage and that particular version uh, will prosper and the other ones will get killed off by the immune system. Now, people think that this means that, you know, you're going to have a kind of deadly strain and a non-deadly strain. As far as we know so far, there are two strains and neither is more infectious or harmful um, than the other. You would expect, because you have uh, flu viruses are very similar, that you'll have change going on, and that change might mean that the virus is different enough that actually the next time we meet it, our bodies won't recognise it. I mean, we see that with flu, Mm -hmm. and that's why you have to have a a new flu virus every year for the dominant uh, strains. But having said all of that, because that makes it sound, oh, my God, we won't have long-lasting immunity, that's possible, but equally... I point you to the last big flu pandemic, which was bird flu. And actually, the people that didn't get it at the time were the elderly. And the reason they didn't get it was because even though it was a completely new strain, all those elderly people had been through, uh, had lived through the 1960s when there was a flu uh, pandemic, which was at the time called Hong Kong flu, I think. And they had some immunity to it. So even though people think, oh, my God, we won't have any immunity to it, it'll constantly mutate. Actually, there's reason to think that we may have immunity, which it might not be long lasting, but certainly will get us through a couple of seasons. Um, so that was really interesting. And that actually leads me onto a question that I had a bit further down the line, but I'm going to ask you now. Um, a lot of people are saying, can we get reinfected? So can you get this virus twice in a short period of time? Because there's been one or two small anomalies that I've read about um, that have had it again twice. Um, And I think a lot of people's fear is once they've had COVID-19, can they get it again? So if people really got it again very quickly after this, it would uh, rewrite what we know about uh, the immune system. So I... I think it's unlikely that in a very short space of time, people will uh, lose their immunity if they've had it before. There have been some reports that people came back with it, but the trouble is that you don't know about the testing. So you'd have to do that. You'd have to hear a lot of reports before you thought, actually, that was a problem. You know, they did they, was somebody really negative before? You know, when they were released from hospital and they tested negative, were they really negative, or were, were the virus levels kind of on a on a borderline? And you know, they they then they've been retested and they didn't really go away. The trouble is, some people's um, and and just while I'm on that, some people's virus levels can remain for quite a long time. They're not infectious all that time, but uh, from what we understand so far, if you test for virus. Uh, you can, you can a, a test can be positive for a, about a month afterwards. Now that doesn't mean people are infectious all that time because we think that what they're detecting is dead virus. But th- what I'm trying to get across is that there are reasons why tests can sometimes be wrong. That's really interesting because obviously there's a lot of talk at the moment about increasing the testing when they have more supplies and about the new antibodies test and. Would that mean that after the 14-day isolation period or seven days once you're showing symptoms, that you're still infectious? Because I think there's a lot of miscommunication out there about when you are infectious and when you're not. So what it looks like is that 
So I said that you can detect the virus for up to a month in some people, but that what you can't do is you can't then culture the virus from that person after about 10 days. Right. So the fact that you're detecting virus is that you're detecting dead virus particles. What you're not detecting is live virus. Because if you can't culture it after about 10 days, that's what that suggests. So people are not infectious. The worry is actually that they're infectious before they have uh, symptoms. Right. And there's a there's probably a lot of people who are carrying the virus and uh, not having any symptoms, but infecting other people. Well, that's the worry. I think that's why we're in self-isolation at the moment is because obviously a lot of people walking around maybe having the virus and not having any symptoms. Why is it that some people don't seem to have any symptoms and some people having more severe symptoms than others, such as men seem to be having it worse than women. Um, younger people don't seem to be as high, as highly vulnerable. Let's tackle that in uh, stages. So some of this is not a clue, Gov, because we don't know enough about the, but, about the virus. But there are several reasons why you get, might get more severe disease uh, than someone else. Age is the first thing. And that may simply be because as we get older, our immune systems wane and are less effective. But it also may simply be that as you get older, you're more likely to have other underlying conditions. And we know that having hypertension, having cardiovascular disease, uh, increase your risk of serious symptoms. We also know that being obese is uh, a particular uh, worry. And we know that uh, people who have um, underlying lung problems, and that includes people who've been uh, smokers, also have issues. And that makes sense whether it's a, a respiratory virus. Now, men uh, do much worse than women. And part of that may simply be because men are more likely to smoke. And remember that we've seen the figures that have come from China where women smoking is quite unusual, but where men smoking um, is very common. So that may be skewing what we know. However, we're also saying that in uh, Italy. And we that may partly be a reflection of something which is age old, which is that women's immune systems are much stronger than men's and you when dealing with infectious disease. And you see that in that although there are equal numbers of uh, girls and boys uh, born, actually boys uh, sort of get knocked off <laughs> quite early in life because they succumb to more infection. But the flip side of the coin is that women are much more prone to autoimmune disease because their immune systems might be stronger, but they also attack um, themselves, you know, the, 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 the host as well. Mm -hmm. So another reason why you might get it more severely is because you've had a big viral dose. And what we're seeing is we're seeing people like ophthalmologists or uh, anaesthetists. So people who, doctors who spend very close proximity with the most infectious bits of patients with COVID-19, they seem to get very severe disease. So they're getting a big viral uh, load. And finally, there's the thing about genotype. So we are not all the same. And it's the reason why some of us would survive, even if there was a disease that, you know, came scouring through uh, human populations. Some of us would always survive because we're not all the same. We're not clones. So some people may have problems with their immune system, which is dictated in part by, um, well, dictated by their uh, uh, their genotype. So they may just have a problem uh, with uh, coronaviruses or with uh, viruses uh, more generally, and they may have different parts of their immune system affected. So they're healthy in all other respects, but they just don't do well with this virus. Another possibility might be that uh, there are receptors, kind of docking bays on the outside of cells, which this virus hijacks to allow it to get inside uh, the cell. Now, it might be that also you have a genotype that is the recipe, if you like, for those receptors. 
And because your recipe isn't quite as good as other people's, it may give an access all areas path to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So once again, you increase viral load, or it could be a combination of that. And what's interesting is that, that they're going to do whole genome sequencing for people who've been extremely ill, who don't have any underlying health conditions, because those are the people that you would expect to have a genetic reason for being exceptionally ill. That's really interesting. And you didn't mention anything about pregnant women there, but I have a few people asking me that they're pregnant at the moment, they might be in their first trimester, their last trimester, but are they also at risk because the government has said that they're also quite highly vulnerable? So every virus will have a different population profile in terms of the people that uh, it it causes more severe disease in. So in the bird flu pandemic, pregnant women were extremely badly affected, but older people were not. And we knew that children were uh, spreaders. Of this, what we know of this is that pregnant women are no more or less likely to get severe symptoms than anyone else healthy in their age group. However, um, having said that, I know that uh, the NHS has now said that any woman in the third trimester of her pregnancy should not be uh, in contact with people with COVID-19. So I think in general, it's it's good news, uh, but uh, you know, lots of pregnant women will not want to take any chances, and you know, will want to keep away from others as much as they can. But they shouldn't worry overly because this doesn't seem to be affecting uh, pregnant women. And we haven't seen, I think there's only been one case, we haven't seen any vertical transmission. So that is transmission of the virus during pregnancy to the baby. We have seen some babies who've got uh, COVID-19 and they do they seem to do pretty well. Okay, well then that's that's very reassuring for a lot of people that I know that have are quite worried about being pregnant during this time and contracting COVID nineteen. So a few people have also asked me they want to kind of understand how your body's defence mechanisms kick in and why they kick in during this time of when you do start developing symptoms. So I didn't know if you'd be able to give a bit of a breakdown of why and how your body reacts to the virus. So. Why do you spike a high temperature, such as it's obviously harder for the virus to survive in this environment? Why do people feel so exhausted? Why do people struggle to breathe? A few people have asked so many questions about the actual symptoms and how and why their body works and has that defence mechanism. So I'm a scientist, not a doctor, so I can't advise you on the on the medical side. What I can tell you is that uh, high fever... Um, viruses don't survive much above 40 degrees. So high fever is a way of uh, the body naturally, you know, one of the armory that is within the immune system to knock out invaders. So basically, as soon as the, uh, as the SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus hoves into view, your immune system is trying to throw everything it can at it. Uh, it will develop uh, antibodies, and antibodies will rush along and try and uh, neutralize uh, the virus. And huge quantities are produced. I mean, just millions and millions and millions to try and knock out the virus. And that's why possibly having a very high viral load. So, you know, your immune system is just faced with an overwhelming (laughs) invasion. Uh, May When you originally infect, may be uh, an issue. But I don't... You know, people's immune systems are pretty good. And unless you're on immunosuppressive uh, drugs um, or you have, you know, something else that's suppressing your immune system, actually you should, your immune system is pretty good at fighting this. But that doesn't mean that you won't be extremely unwell for a bit. Mm. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. So I'd love to talk to you about the vaccination of uh, COVID-19? Because I know that you've worked on the vaccination during the period of the MMR and the swine flu. 
how close are we to a vaccination of this? And we're a long way off. Okay. So, uh, so let me tell you what's involved in making a vaccine. So you will have heard, and don't believe President Trump. <laughs> so you will have heard that people have got vaccines ready already. What they mean is that they've what they've got what's called candidate vaccines. So they've got potential vaccines. Now the thing that's changed between this pandemic and the uh, swine flu uh, pandemic uh, was that huge advances have been made in the technology surrounding uh, particularly genomics. So as soon as the Chinese made available the genome sequence for SARS-CoV-2, scientists all over the world started to look at it to see, first of all, whether there were any particular weaknesses, Achilles heel, that they could detect, uh, which might be useful in preparing a vaccine. And they also used, I mean, this is using computing and all sorts of other things. They very quickly worked out what kind of vaccine uh, might work. Now, here's the bad news. So there are at least 40 groups, to my own knowledge, and there may be well more than that, mm. who are working on vaccines. Uh, we've already got some experience with SARS and with MERS, so those two, so uh, there's companies that have been uh, working on, on those for some time. Although, as far as I know, there's not one that's in mass uh, production for either of those uh, diseases. The issue is that um, RNA viruses have, or oh, not RNA viruses in particular, but this, these, uh, this particular group of viruses are what's called enveloped viruses. So they surround themselves in a fatty membrane, and that makes it quite hard for the immune system to recognize the virus. I mean, that's part of its disguise, if you like. So making vaccines is quite tricky. The normal way you'd make vaccines is you would either use a weakened live one, like for measles, or you'd use a um, a dead one. I think hepatitis is also a a, a vaccine that uses a dead uh, virus. But those don't seem to work particularly well for coronaviruses. So there are lots of other different approaches. And these include, um, as you you'll all have seen pictures of the coronavirus. So it's it's round, looks like a kind of bomb, and it's mm -hmm. covered with these little spikes, um, these thorns that are all over it. That's why it's called a coronavirus, crown of thorns all around it. And the idea is that you uh, make a vaccine which is based on uh, the protein that's that. that of which the little spikes are made, and that that's a way to, for the um, immune system to then immediately know that as soon as it sees that protein on the outside, that's what it's got to lock onto. Uh, there are lots of other approaches. There are uh, DNA vaccines, there's RNA vaccines. RNA vaccines are where you the vaccine tricks the body into producing proteins that are similar to that for the virus, so that um, so you don't actually introduce any bits of the virus into the body at all. You're tricking the body's own cells into producing the protein that's like that of the virus, which oh. will then stimulate the immune system for the future. Here's that's the different. News. That's different to the flu jab, isn't it? Which actually gives yes, you yes, a bit of the different. virus. Yeah. Yes. So um, what's the next steps? So people who produce these, these candidate vaccines, as they're called, they then have to do lab tests uh, in animals and, uh, you know, in lab cultures, uh, some really sort of basic tests. Then what you have to do is you have to do a first in man trial. And there's a couple of those that have already started, one quite close to me in here in Oxford and the other's a, a US uh, company. And those involve a couple of dozen people at most and they're safety trials. So when I put this vaccine in, do people just fall over? So you're not even testing efficacy, you're just testing, is it safe? Mm -hmm. The next thing you do is a phase two trial. Phase two trial involves hundreds of people, and you're seeing whether the vaccine produces antibodies. 
And some vaccines produce lots of antibodies. Uh, but the next bit of the process is a stage three trial. And the stage three trial, you're testing efficacy. So not simply, does this vaccine produce antibodies? But the much more important question, does it prevent people getting this disease? And that stage involves about probably, well, several thousand uh, people. These things are really slow. The average time it takes for a vaccine to be made is about 10 years and more usually 20 years. Mm. So these are long-term things. And you have to answer all sorts of questions. Regulators are hugely involved because, remember, you're giving vaccines to people who are healthy. So that means you have to have a, a much greater, um, you know, a higher bar. I mean, for instance, if you're developing new medicines for cancer, people are very sick and the alternative is, is death. So if the side effects are very severe, then you have to balance Know, the one against uh, the other. Whereas with healthy people, most of whom are likely to survive an illness, you have to have a much greater safety bar. But there's all sorts of questions that need to be answered. You know, how many doses do you need? How far apart do they need? You know, what is the amount of the dose? And a lot of these things like DNA vaccines and RNA vaccines are new approaches. They've not been tried before, which makes the regulators even more cautious. So I think whatever people say that we're looking quite a long way ahead and there's the whole thing about manufacturing. So even when you've got your uh, vaccine, you have to manufacture it. And manufacturing a biological product is not like manufacturing widgets. You can't just, you know, crank a handle and out come vaccines at the other end. Biological processes often can go wrong for reasons actually not always uh, apparent. They're relatively slow. And there are all sorts of other issues like, you know, where would you locate a vaccine factory? And the ones that are you might use that are already around are actually at capacity at the moment uh, making flu vaccines. So would you have to boot out the flu vaccine which we know kills lots of people mm. ordinarily, in order to make room for the coronavirus vaccine. And, and then you've got to ship it and get it out to people. And you would initially only see it go to uh, frontline healthcare workers and first responders. So it's going to be a very, very long time, I suspect, before we see a coronavirus vaccine universally available as part of a national vaccine program. Well, that's really interesting that you were talking about how, you know, will we have to stop the flu vaccine to start making way for more development of the coronavirus vaccine? But how more severe are the symptoms towards coronavirus? Because a lot of people have actually said that it's quite similar. Do you think it's more deadly than the flu or do you, influenza or do you think it's along the same lines? It's just because we haven't got any immunity to it. What's kind of your take on that, really? So the thing that is a problem with... So here's something that we really don't know about coronavirus. We simply have no idea of the denominator. And by the denominator, I mean, how many people have been infected? So if you're thinking about something which, is, um, which causes death in one in a hundred people who you know have got the disease, you're talking about a, a you know, death rate of, of, of 1%. But what if you've got a thousand people who've got who've been infected, but the trouble is you don't know about the 900 who've been infected who've had no symptoms. And so if you then do the sums, you've got a much, much lower death rate or mortality rate than you might think. So it's quite hard to be definitive about mm. the mortality uh, for this virus. The issue is, and, and it's not, and it's less, inf well, we assume that it's less, uh, that it's more infectious than seasonal flu. So let's look at its transmissibility. I mean, in the scale of viruses that are very infectious, it's nowhere near something like measles or mumps, but it's more infectious than flu. But as you say, it's an issue about 
numbers and the number of people. So if, if we've got no immunity and this virus is ripping through the entire global population, then simply and, and you've got, um, mm-hmm. you know, morbidity or, you know, severe symptoms in, let's say, one in five or one in six, then that's an awful lot of people who are very seriously ill and needing hospital treatment. So the number of people who have flu each year is is, is large. I mean, there are about, on an average year, about 12,000 deaths in the UK from uh, flu. But lots of people have got relative immunity to flu, either because they've had a flu jab or because their bodies have encountered uh, flu b- before. So the numbers aren't so huge. But with this new virus, because so many people are infected because their bodies haven't seen it before, you've got very, very large numbers of people with severe symptoms. So it's it, it, it's a numbers uh, thing here. Yeah. And that's why the, when people were talking about herd immunity, the idea that you could infect 60% of the population, well, yes, but it would also mean that a very large number of people would have be hospitalised with severe symptoms. And it's not just you know the elderly, it's also people who are in their 20s, 30s and, and 40s who are not immune, can I tell you all now, to having a serious disease. Yeah, I think that's a really good point to make. I think a lot of the younger population um, do think that they're immune um, to it. And it's not just even if they do not face symptoms, it's also the risk that they're putting at other people by leaving their houses. So I guess the really important takeaway from all of that as well is there isn't going to be a vaccine for a good 18 months or so, maybe more. And so the best thing we can do at the moment is to stay at home and to wash our hands and to keep social distancing and to make sure we're not visiting anybody who's vulnerable on any of the earlier advice that you gave of the people that might be more systematic towards this coronavirus. Yeah. But so how long that, do you think really, we're going to go in long, this for? Yes. How, like how long? How long? Yes. And um, what is the exit strategy? And Will we always be living in our houses? <laughs> <laughs> I think lots of things will change as a result of us having had this lockdown. But do I think that it's going to go on forever like this? No. And having those antibody tests is absolutely critical in this because we really, really need to know how many people have been infected. That's a that's a, a, a critical point. Um, I suspect that we will be through the worst of this perhaps more quickly than we think. There is going to be a very grim period for the NHS, which is rolling up very fast right now. But I think that we'll be through it more quickly than we fear. Um, And I think that there are a lot more people that have had this than we suppose. But having said that, the other bit of this is that the longer we're in lockdown, the more deaths occur because people are not getting ordinary medical treatment. Mm. So, you know, if you have a heart attack and if you or if you have a stroke and you can't get into you can't get an ambulance and you can't get into hospital to get the drugs that you need then you may die. And those are the indirect deaths that are caused by this. And, you know, there comes a a balance point where you have to think about the long-term effects of of that in the mix. No, it's so true. And also, you know, you were talking about one of the risk factors of being obesity. And I can imagine with everybody staying in home isolation, that that could also be, you know, over time and over the summer, another increased risk factor. Because people yeah, will be less house party, um, yeah. yes. Not to mention house party and people um, having uh, cocktails. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm just thinking about actually this evening, a friend in New York has uh, said, you know, Manhattan's at six. <laughs> but I normally drink, you know, Manhattan's. No, <laughs> but you know, a house party encourages me to do it. <laughs> I mean, I think we're all trying to find ways of reinventing now you know, drinking at home and having more fun. But it's, it is that, you know, mental health is going to have a massive strain. And how many more um, 
you know, how much more strain will we see in the NHS regarding mental health illnesses after this? Yes, and I think there are other things as well. I mean, I I do seriously worry about uh, domestic abuse. And I Mm. don't mean just the kind of domestic abuse that I encountered in being queued the other day, where I heard three separate women say to their husbands, if you think you're going to get through this without doing that, that, painting that back bedroom, think again, pal. (laughs) I know everyone seems to be in home improvement, but it is those really worrying um, people that are in those vulnerable situations also that, you you know, that are in isolation with maybe an abusive partner um, during these times. That is also quite worrying. And and I don't think that's actually talked about a lot at all where people can get help. So I think there's and a whole pretty desperate stuff. If you're uh, cooped up with uh, small children in a very small flat and you live in one of those London boroughs that have shut all the parks, where on earth do you take your kids? Mm. What do you do? I mean, it's it's very difficult for people. And, you know, there are a lot of people who are very, very anxious and with good reason. It's not, you know, they're not worrying about whether they get the virus or not they're worrying you know can they get through this can they get their kids enough to eat you know are they gonna end up you know beating up their kids because it's become such a pressure cooker Mm. in their home environment I mean they're all real concerns no it's true and it's I know that at the moment we're, we're saying that we might be out of it quicker than we think but will we see this virus occur later this year and if we do do you think we'll be in the same situation again as we are now? Um, I think that we will see it again because that's a classic thing with viruses you see I mean you see it with um, with with flu it seems to be um, seasonal but we're not sure about that but you see a lot of seasonality in viruses uh, you know, there are some mild coronaviruses that cause colds. There's a seasonality to them. Now, it may be that the seasonality is simply about what we're doing. So it might, you know, typically, we all know this, don't we, that, you know, around Christmas and just after people come down with uh, flu or very bad colds or whatever's going around. And that may be because, you know, we're partying madly, uh, we're, you know, we're crammed with lots of other people in in close environments. You know, there are all sorts of things going on like that, and we do that less in the summer when we're more outside. But on the other hand, it may be that there's a genuine seasonality to viruses that they do better at some times of year than the other. They may not survive very long uh, outside the body in the summer months. Um, some viruses, you know, desiccate very quickly or uh, they don't do well in very bright sunlight, you know, all those kind of things. So we don't know. But having said that, you know, Singapore, hot and sweaty, and they've, you know, they've had a good dose of coronavirus. So we mm. simply don't know is the answer to lots of questions about this coronavirus. No, that's really interesting. I think a lot of people are trying to fathom out how they can't get it, how they can avoid it. I mean, the main, the main again, I reiterate, is washing your hands. But a lot of people in my field, um, I've seen a lot of fads going around about immune boosting foods and how you can help stop yourself getting COVID-19 from eating a certain way, taking certain supplements. And I just love to hear I'm sorry, your... I think that's, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. That's a whole load of, a it... whole load of nonsense. Exactly. And can I just point out something? So during the Spanish flu uh, pandemic in 1918, the people who died the quickest were the fittest and healthiest. And what you have to remember is that your immune system is like a dog on a leash. Mm. It's ferocious. And if your immune system is very healthy and it goes into overdrive when it meets an infection, then you get this runaway thing called a cytokine storm. And people literally die because their own tissues are being attacked by their own immune system. And they died very quickly. And in the 1918 pandemic, it was the youngest and fittest who, who the ones who died very quickly. So, you know, boosting your system <laughs> might not be such a great idea. And also, mm. 
Yeah. You know, the idea of boosting, um, mm-hmm. I do have a big problem with. Exactly the same. It's trying to get people to understand the immune system. That is absolutely the right term to use. There are things that you can do for your general health, which will also help your immune system work at peak. And those are boring things that people (laughs) know anyway, you know, get enough sleep, don't drink too much, eat, you know, a reasonable diet with a, a varied with, you know, lots of uh, uh, green veg, all those kind of things Mm. are the things that make your immune system uh, healthy. You do not need special diets. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I would have said that fatty diets work against your immune system. Um, The other thing to recognise is that, I I always find this is interesting, is that stress, um, so people often say that they will be working up to going away on holiday and they're working really hard because they've got to clear everything in the office and they remain super healthy and the minute they get out to holiday they just they've succumbed to any old bug i mean it's partly because their bodies are meeting viruses that they've never met before because they're in a foreign country but it's also because the immune system when it's under a, a stress like that works at peak so so stressors if you're if you're stressed in a situation it doesn't mean that your immune system is going to crumble where it does have a problem is where you have long-term chronic stress Mm -hmm. so if you look at for instance uh people who are carers for those with alzheimer's those are the people in whom you see chronic stress so i I think uh, I, i do have some issues about stress because I think people don't understand what stress really is. Mm. And, it, and and the other thing to say about uh, where you do really see this happening with the immune system is uh, famine uh, is the often the precursor to plague. So if you look back in history, you'll see famine and then you'll see incidents of, of plague. So there's a fantastic... Um, Journal of a Plague Year by Daniel Defoe uh, of 1665, the year before the Great Fire of London. And there had been a series of extremely poor harvests and people were starving. Now, what happens if you're starving is that there's a there's a hormone called leptin. And if the it's released by fat and if the body doesn't hear the siren call of leptin because there's no fat left because you're starving, it starts to switch off those body systems which are extremely expensive to run. The first to go is your reproductive system. So that's typically, and you will see that in athletes too, and ballet dancers who are very lean, that their immune system, that their reproductive system switches off and they stop having periods, for example. Mm-hmm. But you also see the immune system being switched off. And that's when you know people succumb very, very quickly to anything that's going around if they're starving. We are not starving people. No. And that's just one thing, just to say, eat well and eat balanced. And stop stop anything that you hear that says immune boosting, turn it off. Don't look at it. It's going to be a fad. It's going to be a fad. Get enough sleep and reduce your alcohol intake. Yep. And anything also that says, if you see something that... Uh, that has as its kind of tagline, this is something that pharmaceutical companies didn't want you to know about. Yes, that is another great one. always a great scam line. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's always a great one. No, that's really important to also put in here, you know, the people and the voices that you should be listening to are such as the World Health Organization, such as the WHO. That's a really good, reliable resource um, and government websites. And I know that you're also working with the UKRI. Um, so so UKRI, in case people don't know what it is, so UKRI, uh, all the research councils um, come under its umbrella uh, and it set up a website with Patrick Valance, the uh, chief scientific advisor. It's called coronavirusexplained.ukri.com. Dot org, and that has got all the science with all the references. All of them are open source and open access, so that you can um, look at, have a look at anything there, and you've got the the proper science. And it's oh, peer reviewed, and it's very good. 
Fantastic. Perhaps not just because I was writing some of it. <laughs> <laughs> but that is one of the most responsible um, resources as well as the WHO and, and the government's website, NHS, is that we should be listening to. Um, so I just wanted to make sure that we're directing people to the correct and right sources of help here as well, um, as well as listening to you. Um, lastly, do you think we're going to see an end to this? Do you think coronavirus, COVID-19 will ever disappear? No, it's not going to disappear. It's going to roam about and it will, but we will learn to live with it. Should we be avoiding anti-inflammatories such as ibuprofen? And if so, why? So ibuprofen, I think people are advising against it, using it. But in truth, I suspect the real story is that the jury is still out. Uh, the these anti uh, so these anti-inflammatories. One of the issues is that uh, if you raise your temperature, it stops the virus uh, replicating. So the higher that your body temperature, the less the virus is able to replicate. And uh, things like um, non-steroidals, things like ibuprofen, are particularly good at lowering temperature. Paracetamol is also good, but I think the thing was supposed to be that it lowered it uh, too much and therefore it prolonged the course of the disease. Uh, there is also some issues with the use of uh, these drugs in people who have, you know, in who are being treated in hospital. And I think, um, you know, if you if you've taken a couple of ibuprofen don't worry about it. But it's probably better that you take paracetamol until people are absolutely certain what the issue might be here. Yeah, it's a theoretical risk, really, isn't it, at the moment of, of taking it. I think the one thing I'd read a lot about on it was that the receptor the virus binds to can be upregulated with the use of anti-inflammatories. So ibuprofen as an anti-inflammatory but again we don't know the evidence in that and it is a theoretical risk so so it's possible that it could be increasing viral load rather than decreasing viral load but but again this is theoretical and i think that i think one of the things i really want to say in in, in this uh, podcast is that there's an awful lot that we don't know yet I think you always have to be honest and say there is so much that we don't know. And you can see the science is just pouring out. Uh, if you look in um, journals like Science and Nature, and by the way, all that material, all of the big journals have as a, as a policy put all of the uh, papers that they publish on COVID-19 and the virus, they are putting them on uh, open access platforms. So everybody can read this evidence, but it's changing very, very fast. And the thing I also want to say about science is it's right until it's wrong. So you, you know, what you know can be supplanted by something that you discover because you've got more evidence. So People should expect the story to change a bit as we get more evidence and we find out uh, more. But as I said, there's so much more that we don't know yet. Yeah. And that is that is science in a nutshell, really, isn't it? We always are changing our views on whether it's what we should be eating. Yes. It's not that scientists are, are disagreeing. And I think that sometimes people think, oh, well, scientists can't agree amongst themselves. Actually, there's a tension about what the evidence uh, shows us, and you can make a you can have a view until there's more evidence, and you may have to change your view. That is a good thing. That's not a bad thing. It's true. I always say a good scientist is someone who tries to prove the hypothesis wrong. Yeah, and so they have that hypothesis, which is their view, and you conduct your experiments to try and prove that wrong. And until you can't prove that wrong, then you actually think that it's right. But anybody who tries to prove that hypothesis right isn't a great scientist. Yeah, and I think that is just how science is. It's until you carry on collating evidence, which can take years to really form 
any serious opinion around the matter, which I think, you know, as you said, this is such a such a new virus. We've never seen it before. It's going to take a long time. The evidence is going to continuously change. And two quick fire questions for you, Vivian. What does live well, be well mean to you in your sense of uh, in life, whether that's currently or in this crisis, in the pandemic? What does living well mean to you? Living well for me means having my uh, friends and my family around me. Uh, having my adorable husband to hand, uh, it's it's living well is being with people that you love, and it's also being interested in what you're doing, and getting joy from that, and being well. Well, being well for me is being out in the garden. <laughs> it's yeah. being out in the open air, and it's I'm passionate about plants and you know, watching them grow. So there are lots of things like that. I'm interested in a million different things. Well, that's lovely. I mean, you have got a lot of time to be green-fingered in your garden now. I have. Which is fantastic. And I'd love to hear one interesting fact that you haven't touched upon about COVID-19. Ah, pangolins. <laughs> pangolins. pangolins. Tell me more. Yes. So pangolins were always my favourite animal. Um, I, I, I'm a BBC broadcaster and I did a series called uh, Just So Science and uh, about different uh, animals. And pangolins are those scaly things that you see. Um, they are the most extraordinary animals. You find them in uh, South America, you find them in uh, Africa and other places. And they have a huge value. Uh, their scales are very much used in Chinese medicine. And they're also used as the whole animal is a symbol in some countries. Uh, I think I'm right in saying in Nigeria is one of them that is a is a symbol of of, of kind of chieftainship, uh, if I can put it like that. Mm. And they are the most trafficked animal in the entire world. And a single scale from a pangolin uh, is worth a fortune. So you can imagine that many many people are going out uh, trying to get them. Uh, wow. Because you know they're just a fantastic source of income for people, and their value goes up and up right throughout the the chain. So they're taken from the wild. Now they have um, they have coronaviruses which are very so similar. There's a paper published in Science uh, this week about uh, pangolin coronaviruses, and they're very very similar to this SARS-CoV-2. So it's not known quite how uh, the virus spread. So this SARS-CoV-2 is an example of what's called a zoonosis. So something that's come out of animals that's got into a human and then has become transmissible between humans. And the original source might have been bats because bats carry these kind of coronaviruses. But the intermediate host might have been uh, a pangolin. But the wow. very, very good news for me is that pangolins, now they are known to carry this virus, that means that people will be much more scared and worried about grabbing hold of pangolins. And if they stop getting pangolins, then that's very good news because they're fantastic creatures. And it would just be terrible if they were exterminated in order to provide medicines that are not effective for people who believe that they are that's a really interesting fact. And hopefully the coronavirus can now save the pangolins. Coronavirus may well save pangolins. <laughs> <laughs> that is one really positive fact to come out of the coronavirus. We won't see pangolins extinct, hopefully, as long as this message gets out there and we can tell people to not hunt pangolins because they are carriers for coronavirus. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for being part of the Live Well, Be Well series, Vivian. And I hope you keep well. Thank you for listening to Live Well, Be Well. Please do share with your friends and help spread awareness of this podcast. I hope these conversations inspire you to create a positive change in your life. And if you do like the podcast, please do leave a review. Until next time, live well and be well.
Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.